Today's reading is from Acts 3, verses 1 through 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others, because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Good morning, everyone. Pastor Sharon here. It's good to be together with you in worship, and then also to be together around God's word. These are challenging times for us. And I think as we gather together in worship and remind ourselves who we are in Christ, we are encouraged as we go forward. So I have a question for you. How did your last conversation about politics turn out? So maybe you've been on Facebook exchanging views, maybe at a family gathering you shared your viewpoints, maybe an email exchange with a friend. And if you're like most, your conversations are either advocating for a similar perspective or else you're bemoaning the other side and incredulous about the things that they're advocating for. And if you find out that you're on different spectrums in the political landscape, it can become quite contentious. You know, when we argue about politics, we easily value our own viewpoints more than we value the relationships. But people have always tried to measure, you know, whose side are you on and what part of the, what part of the political landscape are you landing in? And then we decide, what are we going to share? What are we going to talk about? You know, political disputes are not new. Even though they seem to be even more heated during this time, people have always had different viewpoints about what it means to engage ourselves in this world. And throughout Christian history, we see followers of Jesus, the church, aligning themselves different in different ways with the political landscape. So we ask the question and we wrestle with this. What does it mean for us as participants in the kingdom of God to influence and intersect with the kingdom of the world, with political landscape? For the next several weeks, we're going to be in a series called No Other King, where we're going to be looking at what it means to give our allegiance to Jesus as king. If he is truly king of kings, what does loyalty to him look like? Is it more than just speaking the words out loud, quoting a verse or singing a song in worship? How does our allegiance to Jesus as king influence and impact our engagement in political things, in social things, in spiritual things. So in these weeks together, we're going to be looking at issues of loyalty for those of us who call Jesus our King. And today's text that you heard read for us is an example of kingdoms colliding. The reading from Mark shows Jesus engaging in a political argument, and he's really being tested pushed to take a side in a political and religious debate. 
And as we hear Jesus' powerful answer to this setup, we're going to see where Jesus' loyalties lie. And hopefully we'll also get a picture of the proper place of politics in our discipleship as Christians. What happens? What happens when the kingdom of this world collides with the kingdom of God? So if you have your Bibles either in print or on your uh, device, a digital device, take a look again at Mark chapter 12. We're going to be engaging with verses 13 to 17. Let me just give you a little background first, though, before we jump into this incident, this encounter. Early in the week, earlier in the week of Jesus' life here, we had seen him approaching Jerusalem with his followers. And he rides into the city to the cheers of those who loved him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And then the following day, Jesus enters the temple courts and he drives out those who had been buying and selling. He says, I'm going to make these courts a place of prayer rather than a place of possession. So the climate around Jesus, especially in this week before his crucifixion, seems to be getting more political and more heated and focused. And his actions and words are becoming a threat even more to those who were trying to get rid of him. And so they've been devising schemes to trip Jesus, to test him in his own words. And notice as you go into this in verse 14, how smooth they are as they come to Jesus with their question. They call him teacher. They honor his integrity and his wisdom. You aren't swayed by human opinion, Jesus. You speak the truth from God, they say. Flattering words from forked tongues. So here's the question they push at him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Is it right for us to do this? Now, Jesus sees right through their feigned sincerity. It says in verse uh, 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy and asked them outright, why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, I'm going to, I'm going to go after this question. He knows it's an attempt by the power brokers of that day to find out something they can hold against him. If they can get him to take sides, they might have grounds to arrest him and then get rid of him. It is really an intended collision course between two kingdoms, allegiance to Rome or allegiance to God. And no matter what side he takes, they're going to have questions and grounds to question his loyalty. Are you on the side of Rome or on the side of God? Now, it's interesting to note in this passage that the two groups who had banded together to come and catch Jesus in his words were not usual allies. First, the Pharisees. They were the staunchly religious group that embraced traditional Jewish laws and customs. They were generally opposed to the Roman culture. Their power was religious and cultural. And then there were the Herodians. They were a Hellenistic group, sympathetic to King Herod. King Herod, who was a Jew, but had aligned himself with the occupying Roman forces. The Herodians cozied up to Rome to secure their own power and political influence and their own security. 
So these two groups had really very little in common, except now this common dislike of Jesus and suspicion about his growing influence over the people. So when they come to ask Jesus this question, it's evident it's a trap. So the question was, taxes, are we supposed to pay them to Caesar? And this particular tax they're asking about was something called a head tax, one denarius for each person who was a Roman subject. A denarius really wasn't a huge amount. We might think of it even as a penny in our day's day, but it was basically a day's wages for a common laborer. It was a tax for the privilege of being a Roman subject, and it was highly unpopular with the people. So a simple yes to the question of taxes would not have only been unpopular, but it would have been an admission that the Romans, the Romans had a right to rule. And then a no answer. Well, that would have been insurrection, an affront to the authority of Rome. Two kingdoms colliding. Two groups hoping to hang Jesus on this dilemma. God or Caesar? Sacred or secular? Church or state? Politics or the church? And it's in the brilliance of Jesus' answer that we can perhaps find our own place in this dilemma, some answers to our own questions. And it's not a simple yes or no answer. When Jesus calls for the denarius, it shouldn't surprise us in some ways that Jesus doesn't even have one in his own pocket. Jesus, the king, is without any uh, collateral monetarily or any other way. But he asks them to take a look at the image and the inscription on this coin. And yes, they say this is Caesar's image. This is Caesar's coin. Jesus says then, a brilliant answer. Give back, render to Caesar what it already belongs to him. And give back to God what belongs to him. Two kings and two images are highlighted in this passage. We see it on the image on the coin. An image of Tiberius with his name and his power to collect taxes. The inscription on the coin was probably Pontiff Maxim, which is a claim of authority as the one who is to be worshipped. Caesar's text, Caesar's name, Caesar's inscription on a coin. And then there's another king in the scene, Jesus. The king who wasn't recognized at that time without monetary or political power, but one who is truly bringing in the kingdom. And so he speaks as the God-man to those of us who too have an image imprinted on us, image bearers of God. He recognizes that everything comes from God, even the Caesar tax is under the authority of God himself. And so if Caesar's image, if Caesar's inscription is on that coin, give it to Caesar. But what belongs to God, where the image of God is seen, give that back to God. Tim Keller has written on this about the difference of the kingdom values of this world versus the values of the kingdom of God, Jesus' values. 
And we can see these, yes, in our political realm, but we might also see that these, these values, these things draw on us in our own lives. First of all, the value of power. How can we hold on to power? How can our authority make things happen as we wish or as our tribe wishes so that we will remain having the upper hand? And success, the value of success. How can I secure for myself, my people, my tribe, the benefits of that power? Then there's a value of comfort. What's in it for me? How are things going to impact my well-being? my finances, my family, my security, and then recognition. How do we make a name for ourselves? How might I bring attention to my own accomplishments? We can recognize these values in our political world, but the way they beckon us as well. Power, success, comfort, recognition. Now consider the other king in this scene the kingdom of God and the way that Jesus turned these values upside down, the value of power. He gave up his heavenly authority in order to serve others. Rather than seeking power, he aligned himself with the powerless. And success. Jesus shunned the acclaim of the influences, influencers of his time. He said his goal was to do the will of his Father in heaven, no matter what the cost. Comfort. Jesus walked among the poor, never accumulated wealth or possessions for himself. In fact, he said animals even had places to lay their head, but he, the Son of Man, had nowhere to lay his head. And recognition. Rather than seeking an earthly crown, Jesus submitted himself to a place of derision, a place of contempt when he went to the cross. Two kings, two kingdoms colliding. And we hear Jesus speaking here in his answer of a better way. If we're to give to Caesar what already belongs to Caesar and give to God what already belongs to him, Jesus isn't saying, he isn't advocating for revolt against the state. He isn't saying, don't pay your taxes. But he also isn't saying, give that the state, your full allegiance. This is in harmony with the teachings we see throughout the New Testament, specifically in Romans 13. Paul writes about this to honor those who are in authority over us. Jesus affirms this, the basic legitimacy of government, while at the same time insisting that our highest obligation, our highest loyalty is always to God. And there is a limit to what is owed to the state. Jesus has a brilliant answer in a political argument. And the men, the two groups who had come to try to trap him, walk away in amazement. They have no answer to his clear definition of allegiance, both to the authorities in the state but an ultimate allegiance to God. And here is where Jesus' answer can offer some wisdom for our own time. With political voices calling for our loyalty, with our own values screaming out for power, recognition, success for ourselves, how do we find a way in these colliding kingdoms? 
What does it mean for you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, to be both citizens of the earth, citizens of this country, and citizens of the kingdom of God? Well, let me offer a few suggestions. I've read a great deal about this, and I want to give um, credit to insights I gathered from Reverend Tim Keller and Reverend Eugene Cho and many others. Here's some suggestions for us as the church in this time. First of all, engage the political system as image bearers of God. Let me say that again. Engage the political system as an image bearer of God. We don't opt out of politics. We don't refuse to pay taxes or refuse to vote or refuse to get involved. God has given government a legitimate role in the affairs of the people he loves. And so we vote, we speak up, we wrestle with issues, we take a stand for things that reflect God's priorities. Love for neighbor, care for those on the margins. And whatever belongs to Caesar, to the state, it also belongs to God. The world of taxes, government, production, distribution, immigration, a whole host of things, things that the world is concerned about. This is a place where God's kingdom can break through. So we engage the political system, but we do so as image bearers of God himself. Secondly, we don't put all our trust in government. It is not the main way to address the brokenness in this world. The issues of our political world right now, they're important. But Jesus, as he suggests here, we don't simply acquiesce to the state, the demands of the empire. We put our trust and our allegiance in God and in the kingdom of God that Jesus is establishing on earth and right now bringing to fruition through us, his church. So when any political figure tries to wield divine authority as if it were their own, we are skeptical and rightly so. Because whatever the election results are this week, we cannot put our trust in a leader, in a party, in a political stance. We put our full trust in God, whose kingdom will eventually come in fullness. As someone has said before, we do not worship a donkey or an elephant. We worship the Lamb of God. He is at the center of our allegiance. So don't put your trust in government. Instead, number three, center yourself on God and his kingdom. That means you have to know how Jesus described and lived out the kingdom of God. You know, we sang of it earlier in this worship service, the words of the beatitude. Blessed are the broken, the wounded, the abused, the merciful, those who seek God's way. Those are kingdom values. Allow that to be your plumb line and not the political rhetoric of the day. The kingdom of God has values that can seem totally opposite of the values of this world. And we need to know what that what those values are. Eugene Cho has written a book this spring called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. The byline is A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And he makes this statement here, which I think is so important. The crux of our dilemma is that for some Christians, 
We've allowed our politics to inform our theology rather than our theology and worship of the Christ to inform our politics. Jesus teaches us that we can live in this world and involve ourselves in the political landscape because it is part of his world and yet be faithful, have our full allegiance to God and Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. As we go into this week, we need to hold fast to these truths that we can engage the political process as image bearers of God, that we don't have to put our full trust in government, and that we, as his followers, can center ourselves on Jesus' kingdom. You know, the ultimate expression of the full kingship of Jesus Christ is demonstrated not when he was elected to any office, but when he was executed, when he gave his life out of love for those who even were threatened by him. And as we come to communion today, we see full expression in this table of what it means to have Jesus as king, a Jesus who was not driven by the values of the world's political life for power, for recognition, for success or comfort, but one who came to give himself for the benefit of others. And his ultimate reign is seen at the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The stark declaration, not that he was going to seek worldly power or status, but the power of his love poured out for others, poured out for you and for me. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper today, Jesus is at the center. We're drawn by the welcome of his love. We're moved to tears sometimes by the power of his forgiveness. And we celebrate the wonder of his presence as he meets us here in bread and cup. Let's pray together before we receive communion. Lord, we thank you for this story from Jesus, who wasn't afraid to argue about politics, but did so in a way that pointed to an allegiance to you, first of all. Lord, give us wisdom as your followers to engage in political realm with an eyes toward your values. And remind us as we come to this table that Jesus lived out the kingdom values in this place which seemed a place of defeat, what, which was his greatest triumph. The death and resurrection that brings life to all of those who put faith in him. May that be our center point as we go into this week, into this year, into a following of Jesus as King. In his name we pray. Amen.